Masal Khair. Good evening, everyone. Um, it really is my honor to be moderating tonight's event, a partnership between Al-Khaldi Library, established by the distinguished Jerusalem family 120 years ago, and the Educational Bookshop, another family-run bookshop established in Jerusalem 35 years ago. And under the auspices of the Institute of Palestine Studies, the powerhouse of Palestinian academic and intellectuals working to document the social, historical, and political affairs of the Palestinians. On behalf of the above organizer, organizers, <coughs> and uh, from my very humble living room in Jerusalem, I will try to get the best out of the two great minds we have with us tonight. Professor Rashid Khalidi is joining us from New York, and Professor Kamal Malla or Albire, should I be more accurate. Uh, before I move forward, I'm going to ask uh, Raja Khalidi to say a few uh, more welcoming words on behalf of the Khalidi Library. Raja, the mic is yours. Thank, thank you very, <clears throat> thanks very much, Mahmoud. Thanks uh, to the Educational Bookshop for hosting this and you for moderating this. Uh, of course, nice to see my dear friend uh, Salim and, of course, Rashid, uh, however far we are brought together by Jerusalem. I want to say a few words uh, before we get into the real substance here about to frame, uh, let's say, this book that, uh, that has inspired this discussion. And on behalf of the Khalidi Library and the Mutawallis, the custodians of the Khalidi Library in Jerusalem, uh, we, uh, as, a, as a public library, which has, of course, been difficult to maintain, not only in the last situation of Corona, but over the years, except through uh, intensive support from the family and from increasingly from international uh, uh, donors and cultural much closed to the public uh, for the last 50 years. Uh, so those of you who live in Palestine, please come and visit uh, in Baba Sidsli. Those of you who don't, uh, we'll very soon be launching a brand new uh, revamp website, which really will give you a very good insight into what's going on and all the things we're doing. One of the things that we began last year with the support of the Arab Fund for Economic and Social Development with IPS implementing uh, on behalf of us uh, is a publication series uh, because the library is not only a place where people can come or scholars can consult digital manuscripts, etc., but we increasingly want to be a a source, if you wish, of knowledge, as well as a repository. And in doing so, we uh, developed this publication series, which we're producing uh, together with IPS. Uh, this is the second book, the first in English. The first one was Fada al-Quds, done by a renowned scholar about the history of Jerusalem in, in, in Islamic uh, uh, view. Anyhow, we're now moving through this book into the next one, which will be coming out in the coming months, uh, a, a, a first ever published a uh, manuscript by Ruhi al-Khaldi from over a hundred and something years ago about Zionism, the first Arab reading of Zionism, edited, you will all be happy to hear, by Professor Walid Khaldi himself, followed by a, a selection of, of, of the translations of Ruhi's many studies uh, uh, from the time uh, 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 that he was such an important figure, not only in Jerusalem, but in the library, I would like to add. So I'm saying that this is a, our first English language publication, and hence we hope to reach more than just the Jerusalem and Palestinian and Islamic communities, but also the wider international uh, uh, audience for knowledge about Jerusalem and its cultural heritage. Thanks, that's more than enough. Thank you very much, Mahmoud. 
Thank you very much, uh, Raja, and we wish you the best of luck in your uh, coming work. So we titled uh, tonight's event, uh, The Other Jerusalem, Tomorrow's Jerusalem. And although the official pretext for this event is to launch the edited volume titled The Other Jerusalem, Rethinking the History of the Sacred City, uh, published recently in partnership between the IPS and the Khalidi Library, we really want this to be an opportunity to have a wider conversation about Jerusalem by two of the people who knows the city best. Rashid Khaldi is Edward Said Professor of Arab Studies at Columbia University. He is co-editor of the Journal of Palestine Studies and has served as president of the Middle East Studies Association. He has written or co-edited 10 books, including The Palestinian Identity, The Construction of Modern National Consciousness, and his most recent title, The Hundred Years' War on Palestine, A History of Settler Colonialism and Resistance. Salim Tamari, IPS Senior Fellow and the former Director of the IPS Affiliated Institute of Jerusalem Studies. He's a co-editor of Jerusalem Quarterly and the Hawaiiyat Al-Quds. He's a professor of sociology at Piazet University, and he has authored several works on urban culture, political sociology, biographies, and social history of the Eastern Mediterranean, including the social history of Jerusalem. I will take up my privilege and converse the two authors over four main areas, namely the book itself, and what it offers and the relevancy of many of those writings on today's Jerusalem and the future of the city in the midst of the spiral wave of the Israeli plans. And last, we will look at the BLO strategy, or shall I say the remaining strategy in negotiating Jerusalem. After the initial half an hour or so, we will take your questions to the authors. So please write up your questions in the Q&A section and the capable Laura will filter them to me to present to the authors. We hope today's discussion will be open and informative. We also would like you to, or encourage you to buy the book. It will make a fantastic Christmas present. You can buy it either from the Educational Bookshop website or from the IPS website as well. Two institutions that are worth your support. Let me start with you, Salim. The new publication has 20 contributors. What is the overarching scope of this book? Many published books about Jerusalem. Uh, in the recent years, we have seen, in fact, quite a lot that is published about Jerusalem. What is the special uh, at the hand in this book? Uh, thank you, Mahmoud, and thank you for hosting us on this evening. Um, the book celebrates 20 years of work on Jerusalem, published in the Jerusalem Quarterly, and close to four or five decades uh, of essays on Jerusalem in the Journal of Palestine Studies. So in a way, it's an exhibition uh, uh, showing diff several decades of research and work and public uh, platform on the city of Jerusalem and its history. History is actually the dominant framework of these essays, although we will be talking about the future as, we, as the discussion proceeds. Uh, the book covers four areas. Uh, the physical environment and materiality of the city, history and society, Jerusalem in conflict and religion and international law. The selection has tried to focus on vistas of the city which are not covered in the enormous amount of material that has appeared so far on the city. But of course, um, we we cannot claim to have monopoly over the truth in this matter. We try to bring uh, features of the city which has been marginalized, which have been neglected, 
and also which shows alternative discourse to the one that has traditionally been dominated by a Zionist uh, discourse. Um, I want to uh, suggest a few of these themes. My, the framework of the study uh, appears in the first section, which is called Physical Environment and Materiality. Uh, it contains a, an essay by uh, Rashid Khalidi uh, titled Transforming the Built Topography of the City and another essay by uh, Beatrice Saint Laurent and Hemet Takshumur, Imperial Museum of Antiquity, which deals with the Ottoman heritage of the city before the uh, museumology introduced by the mandate authorities. A third essay by Rana Barakat on uh, the pro-Jerusalem society, which deals with the issues of mandate planning and revamping the physical structure of the city uh, with a special focus on the heritage of Charles Ashby, uh, of a follower of William Morris, and the way in which other planners, including Giddes, the Zionist planner of the city, tried to introduce forms of segregation and ethnic separation uh, under the rubric of uh, preserving the biblical uh, features of the city. And the fourth essay by uh, Wendy Pollan from the University of Cambridge and Max Guizada on uh, the city of David as a frontier and deals with the uh, question of Zionist archaeology uh, imposed on the invented history and the core area of Silwan. City of David, of course, has been uh, a very uh, prominent features of the way in which uh, Israeli archaeology has tried to appropriate the various layers uh, of uh, heritage in the city with a focus on the area uh, on the, of the southern slopes towards Silwan. I would say that the overarching conceptual paradigm, which is not always made explicit in this book, is that the history of Jerusalem is a cumulative history in which layers of civilization and cultures have accumulated and reflected themselves in the architecture, in the organization of neighborhoods, in the emergence of various cultural trends. And in a very basic way, it tries to, and this is something that Rashid has actually developed in his first essay, it tries to avoid the whole nationalist uh, discourse on who was there before. Who was, who was the originator of the city. Instead, it tries to examine archaeology, history, uh, sociology, social formation of the city as a cumulative process in which various cultures, various religions contributed to the emergence of what later became the, uh, the uh, Umayyad, Abbasid, Fatimid, uh, Ottoman city, and then the one captured by the British mandate, producing a, a highly diverse culture trends, but with the, um, a, with the 
physical hegemony of the Palestinian Arab population at the turn of the century until it was conquered uh, by the British mandate and the coming of the Israeli administration attempt to what they see as restoring the Jewish features of the city. And that is something that we will be talking about when we uh, examine how these various essays um, uh, began to challenge the existing um, political intervention by Israel in trying to change the cultural, demographic, and physical features of the city. It's uh, certainly a city which, uh, where the historical and the political is uh, very intertwined, probably like in no other city, especially in today's um, recent development in the urban and the development of the city, which we'll come to that later. Uh, can I move to you, Dr. Professor Rashid, and, uh, and, and remind you that back in February uh, 2018, Trump announced that Jerusalem is off the table, and he uh, had the docility to move the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem. We have a detailed piece in this book by Walid Khaldi about the ownership of the U.S. Embassy site in Jerusalem. But my question to you is, how much of these topics are still really are on the international agenda regarding the status of East Jerusalem? Rashid, you are muted. Sorry. I've been on Zoom for most of my life for the past 10 months, and I still forget to unmute myself. Um, welcome, everybody. And thanks very much to Mahmoud and the Educational Bookshop, uh, my brother Reja and the, the custodians of the Khadi Library and my colleagues at the Institute for Palestine Studies for hosting this event. Um, to answer your question, Mahmoud, uh, there are a number of issues uh, that are covered in this book that I think are still very salient in the international status of Jerusalem. Um, one of them is the one that you mentioned, which is the US Embassy. Uh, and one of the pieces in this book is an article by Walid al-Khadi uh, uh, in which he talks about this, the, the U.S. Embassy site. Um, and it is a very, it's an in-depth study of, of, of some aspects of this question. Clearly, this is still uh, on the agenda, whatever Trump may have said, uh, whatever the Biden administration says. Uh, as far as uh, the, the world is concerned, as far as the United Nations is concerned, as far as the law, the international law is concerned, uh, the issue of Jerusalem is not settled and it is not uh, off the agenda. Uh, the fact that the United States has chosen to move its embassy uh, to Jerusalem, the fact that it seems to no longer recognize that occupied Arab East Jerusalem is occupied or is the capital of Palestine, uh, is frankly irrelevant. It's important in power politics, but it's irrelevant in the international context because almost no other country recognizes that. Um, there are a couple of other uh, articles in the book that I think are also relevant. One of them has to do with, uh, with Henry uh, Fatan's uh, essay on the status of Jerusalem in international law. And I think that that's still an important topic. And it relates to the issue that, 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 that uh, you, you mentioned, uh, Mahmoud, which is the move of the embassy. Whatever the United States does, um, there are international resolutions on Jerusalem which are still in force um, and which are well worth paying attention to the Partition Resolution of November 1947, uh, uh, UN Security Council resolutions mm -hmm. condemning Israel's occupation and annexation are still in force. That's international law. And so I think this article is useful to understanding the background of those things. And those are issues which today, I think are gonna come to the fore. 
whatever Israel wants, whatever the United States wants, they do not determine outcomes in the last analysis. Israel can change facts on the ground, of course, with the support of the United States. And sadly, with the support of Europe, which talks about stopping things Israel does, but does nothing to stop those things. And even more sadly, with the acquiescence of some Arab governments, which have normalized relations with Israel in spite of what it's doing and whose normalization will do nothing to slow up the bulldozer that has been operating since the city uh, was, uh, the metaphorical bulldozer that's been operating since the city was occupied in June, 1967. Another issue that's brought up in the book and uh, which is touched on in several articles uh, is cultural appropriation, the seizure of cultural assets, the, the stealing of books back in 1948, and the, the archeological theft that is going on, the destructions of artifacts that are outside of one narrow stratum, which is the subject of obsessive, exclusive interest of Israeli uh, archeologists, the periods that have to do uh, with Jewish occupation or what is presumed to have been. Jewish occupation at some time in the past are the only strata uh, of archaeology which interest those archaeologists who control the archaeology in Jerusalem. And so this is a topic dealt with in a couple of uh, works uh, of, of articles in the book, one by Nazmi Jarbi and another by uh, Gish Amit, talking about cultural appro uh, appropriation uh, and talking about uh, archaeology, among other things. The last thing that I would mention um, and I think it's very, very important, is the status of the Harb sharif This is an issue which concerns Palestinians, concerns Arabs, concerns Muslims, and is of international concern. Uh, it is a matter that is subject to international law. It's subject to agreements that go back and, and to a status quo that goes back long before the British occupied Jerusalem in December 1917, uh, a status quo which is established uh, in the Ottoman era, and which was preserved in many respects uh, until Israel occupied uh, Arab East Jerusalem in June 1967, and which has been constantly threatened in a variety of ways by Israeli actions uh, around the holy sites in Jerusalem, all of the holy sites, in particular the Haram, but uh, churches, mosques, cemeteries, uh, and other sites that are holy or sacred or, or, or have special status. Uh, what has been done in the Mamilla, the desecration of the Mamilla Cemetery, the desecration of the Bab al-Amud Cemetery, the desecrations of other uh, sites, uh, Islamic Christian holy sites uh, by Israel is an mm -hmm. ongoing process and involves both cultural appropriation uh, and uh, 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 an attack on international law and a violation of a status quo, which had been respected previously. Um, and so I think these are all issues that are still salient. In fact, they should be more salient. Uh, we have today uh, a monarchy uh, in Morocco, uh, the head of which is the head of a committee on Jerusalem uh, and which claims descent from the prophet Muhammad uh, and which has just normalized relations with Israel in spite of what Israel is doing in Jerusalem. I think this is a topic that should be of concern to everybody uh, as should be uh, the normalization by other Arab countries with Israel. Um, in particular because of Jerusalem's place as uh, the, 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 the first direction of prayer for Muslims and uh, uh, the, the third holy city in Islam and as this, the central site in Christianity. 
for both of these reasons, this is a this is a place of enormous importance, or should be of enormous importance to everybody, not just Jews, not just Israelis, uh, but to Christians, Muslims, atheists, everybody, anybody concerned with international law, obviously, anybody concerned with justice and equity, anyone who doesn't believe that the rights of one group, religious or national, should take precedence over the rights of others and should, in fact, be implemented at the expense of the rights of others. That is what has been happening in Jerusalem uh, since the occupation of Arab East Jerusalem in 1967. It's what has been done to sites in West Jerusalem since 1948. The destruction of the Mamet Cemetery goes back to the 50s and the 60s, uh, the desecration of it. And it's, it's uh, the, the building, for example, of a so-called Museum of Tolerance on part of it, the expansion of Israeli government buildings on other parts of it, the turning of it into a park, one of the oldest, most sacred cemeteries in, in Palestine. One of the most oldest and most sacred cemeteries in the, in the Muslim world uh, has been turned into a park and a parking lot and other things over the many decades. Uh, I could go on and talk about these things, but these are all issues raised in the book. Uh, and there are reasons that I hope you buy the book. If you're in Palestine, you should buy them from the educational bookstore. Uh, and if you're elsewhere, you should buy them from your local bookstores or directly from the Institute for Palestine Studies in Ramallah, in Beirut, and in Washington, DC. Thank you, thank you, Rashid. You're raising a very interesting mo uh, point there. We will we'll get that back to them on, on the strategy of, of East Jerusalemites and, and, and the big uh, political players, perhaps. But in going back to you, uh, Professor uh, Salim, I mean, we all know how Israel have really used every trick in the book to clear Palestinians from Jerusalem. In fact, East Jerusalem is not anymore a geographical term, but rather a political term. Uh, east, of, east of Jerusalem is West Jerusalem. It's actually meaning Israel's settlements are all around suffocating East Jerusalem potential uh, growth. Then there is the fight inside Jerusalem on the old city and, and buying and, and purchasing and, and, and sometimes stealing houses inside the city, but also in the new city in areas around. Uh, Rashid mentioned Ma'amanullah, but also areas in Sheikh Jarrah and, and, and the Karamil Mufti and, and, and so on. Do you think the steadfastness of the Jerusalemite will hold and it's, it's an enough a tactic to really obstruct the ultimate plan of Israel to raise the Arab character of the city? And you are also muted, Salim. Sorry, Salim, you are muted. Sorry. Uh, I think for the short and intermediate uh, uh, period, these plans seem to be failing. However, the incessant attempt to displace the Arab population or to transform and marginalize them is one of the themes examined in the book uh, but not projected for the future. Uh, I would summarize that the instruments of this displacement have been the use of the law in terms of giving and granting and withholding residency in the city and planning schemes in which the process of gentrification uh, has attempted to marginalize and in many ways succeeded in pushing the core demographic concentration of population towards the marginal areas of the city. So the Israelis have actually made some success in, um, in internal displacement of the city without succeeding in actually diminishing or altering demographic balance in the city, which is one of the major aims of the Israeli administration since the labor 
government came to power in uh, after 67 and especially since the Likud came to power in 1979 uh, when a ministerial committee uh, established that the balance of population in the city should be 30 to 70 in favor of the Jewish population. Actually, I think the, the amount was 31 to 69, but it's a 30 to 70. And that, of course, has failed. What they did try to attempt is to use planning as an instrument of demographic control. And I would call it a process of gentrification and displacement. The first, these are schemes that continue incessantly to operate at the highest level of Israeli government intervention and by the municipality of the city. Uh, I want to just mention four examples of these uh, schemes of gentrification. The saddest of them, and probably the earliest, is the attempt to displace the Bedouins of Jerusalem, Arab Jahalin, who uh, found refuge in the city uh, after the 1948 Nakba, where they were displaced from the Bir Sabah Negev area to the outskirts of Jerusalem. There they settled in the area of Izariye and uh, an area known as Khan al-Ahmar, which is the road to Jericho. Uh, the incessant attempts to displace Arab Jahalin has basically been pushing them out of the area that became as Ma'ali uh, Adumim towards the dumps of Sur Bahar, which is a village in the periphery of the city of the southern area. And that is an area of extremely toxic environment, toxic in, in the physical sense of uh, producing um, poisonous gases and poisonous chemical dumps in which the Arab Jahalin is being pushed. They have resisted that and so far have succeeded in uh, challenging this, their displacement. A more serious plan is one which uh, was brought to my attention by uh, Rachel Khaldi, which is the master plan for the reorganization of the East Jerusalem Central Commercial District, which was submitted for approval by the government in October 2020, just two months ago. And it attempts to reorganize and gentrify an area of 707 dunums in the area of Sultan Sulaiman, Salahuddin Street, the hub of the commercial part of the city. And basically what this plan does is try to uh, develop uh, housing and commercial developments in half the area and demolish and displace about 494 units which are deemed to be illegal. Now you know that in the planning features of the city uh, the government uh, or, and the municipality has been uh, withholding granting permission to develop existing structures whether commercial or residential and therefore many people in order to accommodate their own demographic growth have uh, have uh, attempted to uh, build over or extend existing buildings which are now being challenged and being demolished systematically by the municipal government. A second, uh, a third scheme is the Silicon Valley scheme 
which is now being implemented. Actually, it's been uh, uh, submitted and adopted by the Jerusalem Planning Commission in November 2020, but not yet approved by the government. It it's comes under the rubric of Silicon Valley uh, high-tech developments in the Wadi al-Jaws area, which is the heart of the city adjacent to Mosrara. And the idea is to bring uh, startup uh, developments, high-tech, to an area which is um, basically displacing working class uh, residents of the city uh, and removing them away from uh, Wadi al-Jaws into um, uh, peripheral areas of the city. That is outside the greater rim of, uh, um, of the center of the city to the, the periphery. And the fourth scheme, which I will not discuss in detail, is the Aparot plan to establish tourist facilities, hotels uh, in the Kalandia airport area. This is a very uh, sentimental issue for me because I grew up uh, with the Jerusalem airport 15 minutes away from my house. And that runway is now being reconstructed as a commercial hub in which uh, the, uh, any possibility for restoring an airport for the Palestinians will become impossible. What is most interesting about these schemes is that the last two, the master plan for uh, organizing uh, the center commercial hub and the Atarot airport uh, tourist areas are being funded or are being solicited to be funding by the uh, by Mr. Kushner's and Trump's uh, plan to bring Emirate money for investment in the Greater Jerusalem area. So it's very paradoxical that this, at the end of the Trump uh, administration period. Arab money is being solicited to displace and marginalize the Arab population in the inner city of Jerusalem. It's, um, it's a strange times we're living in, uh, Professor Salim. Um, I, I <laughs> I'll go back to you, Professor Rashid. Uh, and talking, you know, taking what Salim just said and, and take them to the next layer up, if you like, of, of let's talk about the key political powers that really influence Jerusalem within the Palestinian political institutions, namely the BLO. You wrote a book about BLO strategic decisions in, in the siege of Beirut. You were a close affiliate to BLO. Perhaps you are, out of the three of us, you know more how BLO really think. Uh, do you think the usual mantra, and maybe I'm being very you know, provocative here by using or by calling it a mantra, that's East Jerusalem being the capital of Palestinian or future Palestinian states. Many Palestinians are not so excited, uh, to be honest, about this uh, future Palestinian state after experiencing the existing cozy authority represented by the Palestinian Authority. What is there left to negotiate? And in the lights of the growth of the one-state solution followers within the Palestinian public, what future is shaping up for Jerusalem as you see it? Well, you've asked two really big questions. The first is, is the two-state framework uh, viable any longer? And I have grave doubts as to whether it is. And I recognize that uh, 
increasing sentiment among Palestinians, both in Palestine and outside of Palestine, in the diaspora, people like us and people who live in Palestine, like my brother and Salim and you, um, has shifted towards the idea uh, of uh, a, a, a Palestinian approach based on the idea of equity, equality, justice, democratic rights, equal human rights, and equal national rights for Palestinians. And I've, I frankly, as I said in, my, in, the, in the book that you mentioned at the beginning, the Hundred Years' War on Palestine, um, I argue that that should be the basis of the Palestinian approach, whether the Palestinians are asking for one state or two states or multiple states, cantons, whatever, a binational state. Irrespective of what outcome Palestinians demand, I think that the outcome has to be rigorously based on not just justice, but equality. Any rights that Israelis claim for themselves, Palestinians should have in equal measure. National rights, uh, uh, political rights, civil rights, human rights. One group claims the right to bring their relatives from Brooklyn. We should have the right to bring our relatives from Amman and from wherever else they live. If one group claims uh, the right to security, that security cannot be obtained at the expense of the insecurity of another group. So irrespective of what outcome uh, we advocate, I think it should be based on uh, the absolute equality and, and the principle of justice. Were we to talk about a return to negotiations, because the original question would be, how should the issue of Jerusalem be negotiated? I would say several things. I would argue that any future Palestinian negotiator, irrespective of what outcome we're looking for, should demand that the Palestinian position, insist, I should say, that the Palestinian position be grounded in international law. Secondly, it must be based on a rejection of the entire Madrid Oslo framework. This is not a framework that will result in justice, equity, or peace, or a sustainable solution. It was a framework which is essentially based on Menachem Begin's 1978 autonomy plan. The autonomy plan is the Palestinian Authority. Begin's autonomy plan, which provides for, first of all, no Palestinian sovereignty. And by sovereignty, I mean sovereignty, control over population registries, entry and exit, who can become a citizen, import and export, borders, airspace, groundwater. Those things are excluded from the autonomy. Palestinians are not allowed to have control over land, water, airspace, or any of those things. Secondly, it provides for absolute Israeli control permanently over the security of the entirety of Palestine, what Begin called Eretz Israel. That's not a basis for a solution. That is not a basis for a negotiation. That was the basis for Madrid. That is the basis for Oslo. That is not a basis any Palestinian negotiator, dependent, is irrespective of what outcome they might be seeking, uh, should, should uh, Except, thirdly, they should go back to doing one of the few things that the PLO did correctly, which was which would be to launch a worldwide diplomatic and information campaign. The PLO and the PA are dead diplomatically. They do not exist. They have no valence whatsoever. Nobody listens to them. Nobody knows what their positions are. They do nothing. Palestinian civil society has done much, much more through BDS, through student activism, than the Palestinian Authority and the PLO have done over the last two decades. They are basically, they are not, they don't exist. And it is absolutely vital that there be an authoritative Palestinian voice arguing, I would argue in particular about Jerusalem and doing this in terms of, of diplomacy, but not just in the chanceries of Europe and in Washington. Uh, uh, what the BDS, what BDS has shown 
what student activism has shown, is that you get to the chancellors by affecting public opinion. This is something that, that in, in, in the heyday of the PLO, it really did understand. It reached people around the globe. And that's why the pa Palestine has as much recognition as it does, because of efforts that were made in the 60s and 70s and into the 80s, and that have stopped over the last 20 or 30 years. That is absolutely essential. And it has to be a grassroots campaign. It can't be, I meet with the Secretary of State and I've solved the problem. No, if the Secretary of State or the Foreign Minister is not driven by his own or her own public opinion, you have no effect on that Secretary of State or that minister. That's something that most Arab leaders don't understand. Uh, and that's something that certainly the current and recent Palestinian leaderships have not understood. An absolutely uh, uh, extensive ground grassroots campaign has to be launched around, I would argue, around Jerusalem uh, for specific reasons having to do with Jerusalem. Um, finally, it has to be said, none of this would be possible. None of this is possible without a wholesale reorganization, revamping of the PLO. Uh, the Palestinian Authority is not an authority over the entirety of the Palestinian people. Most Palestinians do not live under the very limited jurisdiction of the Palestinian Authority. They didn't elect it, we didn't elect it, the two million Palestinians in Israel, the six or seven million Palestinians outside, we have nothing to do with the Palestinian Authority. It is not our representative. The representative of the Palestinians has to represent all Palestinians. And that means a complete revamping of the PLO. It has to represent the entirety of the Palestinian people. It has to be democratic. It has to be global. It has to be based outside of the iron cage of Israeli occupation. You cannot liberate your country from within a prison. Now, people in the prison play a role in the liberation. But ultimately, moving the PLO leadership into Palestine was to put them under Israeli control. Obviously not a move that any liberation movement in the history of liberation movements has taken. Uh, 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 go to the Irish, go to the Vietnamese, go to the South Africans, go to the Algerians. Of course they had uh, activists, of course they had militants, of course they had uh, uh, members of, of the liberation movement inside the occupied territory. But you have to keep the nerve center and the headquarters outside because the occupation authority, which has liquidated generation after generation after generation of Palestinian leadership, which has jailed generation after generation after generation of Palestinian leadership, won't let you operate freely. They have you under their thumb. Uh, so all of these changes have to take place before uh, anything that I've said. Uh, irrespective of whether our objective is, is one state or, or, or two states or more or a different objective uh, before anything can happen in that regard. And I, I would argue that it should be focused on Jerusalem. Uh, in some ways, Jerusalem is the key. And it has to be based on principles of justice and equity. Um, if anybody from anywhere in the world can come to the Wailing Wall, then anybody from any, anywhere in the world has to be able to come to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, to the Church of the Nativity, to the Haram al-Sharif, and to the other holy sites for uh, Christians and Muslims in Palestine. It's absolutely, and that cannot be at the sufferance of Israel. I had a student in my office today who told me how she was banned uh, from entry, an American citizen, of course, of Indian Muslim descent. That, that is why the, the, the entire framework has to be thrown out. Israeli security control over Palestine, all of Palestine, it, it, it is, is one of the things that Begin's autonomy plan was designed to perpetuate. And every Israeli government that has negotiated this issue since Begin has insisted on that. Olmert, Barak, Netanyahu, Shamir, Rabin, every one of them has insisted on absolute, total, complete, exclusive Israeli security control 
over the entirety of Palestine. That's an attribute of sovereignty. That has to change. And whether it changes in terms of a transformation of the one state reality that, we, that, we, that exists today into a different kind of one state, a democratic state that would represent both peoples, or whether that involves two states is actually not the most important question. We have uh, recently heard about uh, Hanan Ashrawi resignation from uh, BLO. Right. Let's see if that trigger any uh, rocking the boat from within and if that has any um, uh, reflections. Uh, I'm, I'm going to go back to Jerusalem on the issue of Jerusalem. I mean, you know, Rashid is suggesting that Jerusalem should be the central focal point of any real change in the future. But there are things happening in Jerusalem that we don't, maybe we don't like, uh, or, or maybe they are a sign of hope. I don't know. I want to take your reading on it. For example, last week, uh, Israel has um, facilitated or promoted or um, disclosed a law within the municipality, the, the, um, sorry, the Ministry of Interior that young people between the age of 22 can have a speed track to Israeli uh, citizenship within Jerusalem. Uh, we know from Israeli resources that there's an estimate between uh, 8 to 12% of Jerusalemites is actually are acquiring or applying for Israeli passports. Uh, we don't know exactly what the Israeli strategy is to speed up uh, Palestinians acquiring Israeli passport or, or, or actually obstructing them. There's things to read on both sides. Um, on, on a Friday or a Saturday, if you live in Jerusalem, uh, you will notice this uh, joke, uh, which is not far away from reality, that 40, 67, uh, 67 Palestinians are leaving Al-Haram al-Sharif on Friday prayers, and the 48ers inside Israel are coming to pray because the Palestinians in East Jerusalem have a Friday as day off, while the Palestinians inside Israel is Saturday as day off. So the Al-Haram al-Sharif is passed on from the hands of the, of the 67ers to the 48ers. But do you think there is a transition in, 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 in the social demographic of Palestinians in Jerusalem? They're not seeing themselves anymore 67ers, but they're seeing themselves as 48ers, and they're adopting a strategy close to the 48. I don't know if, if I'm making sense. I hope so. Um, yes, I think so. I, um, I want to question the whole uh, constellation of demographic nationalism because uh, on the one hand, it seems that the scheme to marginalize the Arabs and displace them from Jerusalem in terms of the formula established in 1979 by the Ministerial Committee on Jerusalem which established a rough demographic relationship of 30 to 70 has failed by the sheer uh, hard facts that today the relationship of Arabs to Jews within the greater Jerusalem area is more 40 to 60 than 30 to 70. However, this need not be a moment of celebration if we are adopting a demographic nationalist perspective because the, the actual solution to the city, which uh, Rashid has been um, elucidating a minute ago, is not a question of procreating our way to victory uh, through bed, bed uh, sexual politics. It has to do with actually in, uh, finding a proper solution based on justice, on equality, and on territorial self-determination. And this is not an easy formula to, to deal with. Uh, Rashid has um, 
suggested that um, the the issue of Jerusalem should be dealt with uh, bo both in its specificity but also as part of the larger territorial issue. I think it slipped uh, his analysis, uh, the focus on Jerusalem. And by that I mean that I agree with Rashid that a solution for the future of the city should be based on uh, international law elucidated through, if we want to focus on one single point, it's 242. That is what applies to the Palestinian territories in the West Bank and Gaza should also apply to Jerusalem. However, which means separation, of course. However, Jerusalem does have its specificity. So how do we square the circle? How do we maintain a certain specificity to the solution of Jerusalem boundaries while at the same time insisting that Jerusalem be subject to the same uh, international law uh, variables that applies to the area outside Jerusalem, to Gaza and the West Bank. I think uh, this is not an easy formula. We cannot simply say that the heritage of Madrid and Oslo should be canceled. Uh, because that's part of a political process that includes the schemes for internationalization, demographic changes, the fact that Jerusalem has a constituency outside Israelis and Palestinians. The, the claims of the international community, the, the, the international Muslim population, the international Christian population, as well as the Jewish population who are not Israelis, have legitimate claims over the city. Uh, that does not mean that uh, we favor internationalization, but that a special status for the city has to be found, which guarantees access, openness, but mainly self-determination for the Palestinian Arab population and Palestinian non-Arab population in the city within a, a scheme uh, uh, that, that addresses these issues. Okay, great. I'm going to open up that to, uh, to the audience. So please do, if you have any questions. Can I, can I just say something, Mahmoud, before, before we do that? Please. In fact, I'm going to, uh, yes, I'll ask you to say that. And I want also you, uh, Rashid, to Maybe say a few things about how you foresee the upcoming uh, American administrations dealing with the with the with the conflict, uh, namely Biden's strategy to the peace process. Yeah, um, I, I just want to say a couple things about what Salim said. Um, I take his point about two four two. I think it's a good point that one of the things that two four two would presumably provide for, were it one of the bases of a negotiation, would be that the way in which the West Bank is treated. Jerusalem should be treated as the West Bank is, i.e. it's an occupied territory and it therefore uh, should be evacuated. Uh, I'm not sure that 242 provides for that, unfortunately, because the Israeli interpretation of 242, which is that it only applies to the area Israel chooses to apply it to, has been unfortunately accepted by the United States. But I would add that international legitimacy and international law is not only 242. It also includes the General Assembly Resolution of 1947, which for all of its negative aspects uh, included several ideas relating to Jerusalem, which I think might be useful as a basis for negotiation. I don't think that having Jerusalem as a corpus separatum and a unified city necessarily is a bad thing. 
And, I, and, I, and just to conclude in, in terms of my response to Salim, I agree with him. One of the things that should be provided is access and openness. Another thing that should be provided, obviously, is self-determination for the Palestinian citizens of Jerusalem. But the most important thing that has to be provided, I would argue, is things that have to do with jurisdiction, like planning control. If you have planning control in, uh, in the hands of one group of Israel, in other words, then all of the desecrations, all of the violations, all of the abominations in archeology span and urban planning and house demolition, in the expansion of Jewish neighborhoods and the constriction of Arab neighborhoods continues. And the, and, and, and the inequality of, uh, of services, the gross inequality of services, of, of resources devoted to garbage collection in Arab neighborhoods as compared to Jewish and so on and so forth, all of that has to, would continue. So I think all of those things have to be addressed. Um, just to speak to Mahmoud's last question about the Biden administration, uh, I think that in other parts of its Middle East policy, the Biden administration will make much bigger changes than it will make uh, in regard to Palestine and Israel. Um, it will pull back from some of the most egregious, most offensive, most anti-Palestinian measures uh, of the Trump administration. Certainly, they will reopen a consulate in East Jerusalem. For East Jerusalemites, that's probably a good thing. In the larger scheme of things, it's not that important. They will open the PLO's office in Washington. Given that the PLO is like a dead fish and it does almost nothing, it has no informational and no diplomatic weight in the United States and has not for decades. Um, I don't think that that's really great, uh, a, great, a great change. It will resume aid to UNRWA. That's a very good thing. But in the larger political scheme of things, I don't think that the obsessive obeisance of the United States to Israel's claims that are based on security is going to, are going to change. I don't think that the weighting of Israeli rights and Israeli security and Israeli desiderata over those of Palestinians is going to change. Those will continue to be, um, given what we know about Joseph Biden himself, given what we know about Kamala Harris herself, given what we know about Tony Blinken himself, given what we know about the Democratic Party leadership in Congress, there will not be a major change. They may go back to some form of negotiations. In my view, going back to negotiations on the old basis is in some ways worse than facing a Trump administration whose anti-Palestinian uh, bias is overt and clear. I think people who ultimately are, are, are aligned with an Israeli agenda but pretend that they are going to uh, do something for you are probably more harmful in some ways than people who say, we are gonna oppose you and we will only support what Israel supports. That has actually been the American position in practice over multiple administrations, going back to Lyndon Johnson and before. Uh, and I don't frankly think that the Trump administration, sorry, the uh, Biden administration is going to be more than Bill Clinton plus Barack Obama redux, i.e. we'll see the third iteration of the way in which the Democrats favor Israel over the Palestinians. I, I don't expect enormous changes. I, I, the last thing I will say is that public opinion in the United States, however, is changing. Congress is changing. Over time, with work at the grassroots level, that can change. It probably won't change this year or next year. Jewish Americans are changing as well? Oh, absolutely. There's no question. There's an estrangement of important sectors of American Jewish opinion, especially young people uh, from Israel. Uh, campuses which have very large proportions of Jewish students like Brown University, uh, uh, Columbia, uh, Barnard, uh, University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign have voted for divestment. 
Uh, and those, the breakdown of those votes was overwhelmingly supportive, and it included large, large groups of Jewish American students, as well as others. Uh, yes, there are major changes happening in the American Jewish community. There are many people who are more pro-Israel than they were before among uh, Orthodox, among some other groups. But um, there is a there is a, a deep, deep split uh, in, amongst uh, m many, many sectors, especially younger people in the American Jewish community and in, among American Christians and atheists and others. Uh, there's a growing valence of Arab Americans and Muslim Americans who are increasingly getting elected to positions uh, in the state assembly in New York City, uh, in in the to, to, to positions uh, in some cases in Congress, uh, such that uh, we are beginning to see uh, a coalition uh, linked through a sort of intersectionality to uh, uh, African American Black. Uh, legislators and groups to Latinx groups, uh, LGBTQ groups, and so on and so forth, um, such that this is a this is an effort in the United States which now has a weight much greater than just the Palestinian Americans or the Arab Americans or even the Muslim Americans. It's a it's a much broader uh, coalition today. There are 25 sponsors of Betsy McCollum's bill in the House that will be reintroduced in the new House to halt Israeli abuses of Palestinian minors to stop the Israelis jailing children. It had 25 co-sponsors that bill. Every single one was reelected in November. And about 15 more legislators will join Congress who support the same principles. This is unprecedented. There were never 40 people in Congress or 30 or three for that matter that supported Palestinian rights. Uh, that's the beginning of a change. It's not the end. Uh, but uh, I, I think it's very important to keep that in mind. Mm -hmm. In a, in a recent conversation with uh, the great Noam Chomsky, he emphasized the uh, post-Sanders movement that will also continue to right. uh, create uh, triple effects. Um, Salim, I have a question here uh, from uh, Roberto Mazze, your colleague and your good friend. And he's asking me and you, but I want to basically comment on uh, The question goes, how do you see money from the Gulf impacting Jerusalem in the future? Um, There's a lot yeah. of money coming from the government. Well, uh, I'll be very brief. At the moment, the, the money supply to the Palestinian Authority has dried substantially over the last uh, period, with uh, the exception of Qatari funding of uh, the uh, ameliorating daily life in uh, Gaza. The money allocated for Palestine by the Gulf has taken a very murky um, shape lately in the sense of investments by the Emirates into Israel and only secondarily in the Arab territories as a way of funneling recycled Israeli investments in those areas. Uh, unfortunately, the, the way they have been framed by the deal of the century and by Mr. Kushner's and company vision is that these will be shared projects which are aimed at improving the livelihood of the Arab population. And it has been mainly uh, framed as a way of making the Emirati-Israeli scheme palatable. Uh, 
at the moment, the money supply that has been coming uh, after the agreement with the Emirates has been mainly investments and commercial trade between the Israeli sector and the oil sector in, um, in the Emirates. And um, the fig leaf of this being in favor of the Palestinians has not taken any form except uh, by words. Uh, how will this change? Um, I can only say that um, Khaled bin Turk's interview lately uh, to the press in which he countered the current Emirati policies as well as the unarticulated um, Saudi uh, policy in favor of a more uh, even-handed policy supporting the return to the uh, King uh, Abdullah plan for peace. It's a very interesting development. King, King, Fahd, King Fahd plan. King Fahd's plan, sorry. Uh, the Saudi peace plan. Uh, is a very interesting development which shows that the demise, demise of Trump may in fact put some brakes on these investments and in the, in the, in the Saudi case, it may reverse them. Uh, it's too early to actually assert this, but it's something to look forward uh, into uh, in the near future. We had uh, the uh, shameful news that uh, actually the Qataris have, uh, sorry, not the Qataris, the Emiratis have bought 50% shares in uh, Bitar Yerushalayim, the sport club that's the most racist in, uh, in the Israeli sport world. Um, so, so answering um, uh, Roberto from my side, I, I think this money is uh, very much haram by every religion or not that you believe in. And it's... Um, Palestinians at this point in East Jerusalem are staying uh, very distant from this money. Um, Salim mentioned the Wadi Al-Jaws uh, Valley, um, high-tech valley. There's been a lot of promotion for Palestinians to invest, buy, join uh, Palestinians in East Jerusalem, uh, at least on the face of it so far, has been distanced from it. Uh, but we'll, we'll see how, it's, uh, how it will develop. I'm, I'm not on the optimistic side that the Emirati peace deal could change the landscape of the relationship between Israelis and Arabs as a whole, which in counter-effect will uh, advance a better relationship between Palestinians and Israelis. That's uh, my opinion worth of this on this. Uh, I'm going to go back to uh, Rashid before going to the next question, but once upon a time, Rashid, the, the Palestinian cause, uh, Al-Qadriyeh, uh, was the unification element that brought Palestinians together wherever they lived. Right, and the BLO was the focal point of that constellation, and and you wrote a book about the Palestinian identity as well. Do you still think this is still valid? Is it still really this this political cause is what bringing um, uh, bringing together the Palestinians from wherever they live? Uh, I think it does, uh, and I think that culture and art and intellectual production shows that that's the case. Uh, we're about to publish an article in the Journal of Palestine Studies, which uh, is based on survey research, and which shows that, you know, Pal Palestinian identity has taken different forms because of the divisions into which the Palestinians have been chopped by occupation and, and ethnic cleansing, um, but that it continues to play a, an important, it, to play a central role uh, with a different understanding 
uh, given that we're in 2020, we're not in 1970 or 1940, uh, we're in uh, 2020. Uh, I would say something else. Sorry. Could we, divide, could we divide this into being the cultural identity of Palestinians is very strong and it's a unifying element, while the political identity is pretty much is not a unifying factor? I don't know if we can do that. No, I don't think that's true. I think people see it as a, as a cause, uh, uh, that, but they refract it through different understandings of their identity, I think. Palestinians in Lebanon mm -hmm. still are Palestinians, but they have a certain identity and relationship to the Lebanese environment in which their parents and grandparents, most of them, were born, and so on. Um, I want to say one other thing, though, about uh, an Arab connection to Palestine. It has been argued that the Arabs, or the Sunni, the Sunni Arabs, um, are friendly to Israel. And I think that that's based on a fundamental misunderstanding, which is that the regimes that have normalized with Israel, the Jordanian, the Egyptian, now the, the, the Moroccan, the Emirati, and the Bahraini, do not represent their peoples. They are not governments that are based on consent of the governed. They are not democratic governments. There is no freedom of expression. If you look at the polling that has been done systematically throughout the Arab world, Arabs still think the Palestine cause is important. They still oppose normalization with Israel by numbers in the high 70s and in the 80s, over uh, the 11 countries that were surveyed, for example, uh, by uh, Pew or by uh, other uh, the, the Arab Center in Qatar. Uh, so the Arabs have the same uh, identification with Palestine that they used to. They are preoccupied by the fact that four Arab countries have been destroyed by civil war and external intervention. Libya doesn't exist. Yemen doesn't exist. Syria barely exists. Lebanon is in a state of permanent crisis. Iraq based barely exists. People in those countries are, are, are struggling with humanitarian catastrophe, internal division, uh, 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 and, and, and a situation that prevents them from thinking about Palestine. Uh, and we can't blame them. Uh, and so I think that un unless and until there's a democratic trans transformation in the Arab world, something which began in 2011 and was aborted, essentially by the intervention of the reactionary absolute monarchies of the Gulf to prevent revolution and democracy from succeeding. Uh, and it started again in 2019, and it was aborted more, I think, by the pandemic than anything else until and unless that process works itself out. We're going to have a, a gulf between the rulers and their people. So the kleptocracies that control the absolute monarchies of the gulf and they're stealing an inordinate share of the surpluses of those countries are going to make deals with Israel. They've been making deals with Israel for many, many years. Israel, the anti-missile defenses of the United Arab Emirates have been manufactured in Israel for the better part of a decade. Israel has been buying weapons from Israel, sorry, the Emirates have been buying weapons from Israel for years and years and years. Now it's going to be direct investment. But purchases from uh, Raytheon Israel are purchases from Israel. And that's been going on for a very, very long time. Uh, and, and so I think that the, the point that Senim raised, which is that the, the, there are signs from individuals in the Saudi ruling family uh, that they're not necessarily willing to go along with this wave of normalization, is a function of the realization of some of them that there is such a thing as Arab public opinion, even in Saudi Arabia, and even in spite of the anti-democratic nature of most regimes in the Arab world. We have a repeated uh, question here that came a few times. Uh, I don't know if you, Rashid or Salim, would like to have a go at it. It's um, that this uh, missile of the BLO is, uh, is rising locally. How can the Palestinian leadership institutions be reformed? 
I, I'll, I'll leave that first to Salim, and then I'll, I'll take a whack at it. If, 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 if well, I, <laughs> um, you, you heard that uh, our colleague Hanan Ashrawi has resigned from the executive of the PLO uh, because uh, she had issues with the return of the PLO and the Palestinian Authority to the issue of normalization. Many people saw this as indication that the PLO has come to a dead end. Uh, I think it's too early to pronounce the death of the PLO as a viable agency for either resistance or political uh, transformation in the future. The reason for that is because there are no alternative structures that exist. Those that do exist are grassroots, protest, indigenous mobilizing, civil society groups that do not represent the Palestinians at the national or supranational level within the environment. And until that happens, the PLO continues to have not only legitimacy, but I think some viability in confronting the, the present situation. And therefore, I'm not one of those, um, I'm not very sympathetic to what Rashid said, uh, declaring the death of the PLO. If that's, I, I heard you well, uh, because of the lack of this alternative. And I think, um, we should uh, maintain um, two legitimacies at the same time. One legitimacy for the grassroots groups like BDS and uh, international solidarity groups that uh, have um, captured the imagination of the youth in Palestine and outside, while at the same time giving important venue to the PLO as uh, being entrusted with the task of uniting the various factions of the Palestinian movement, uh, resisting uh, Israeli schemes, uh, representing Palestinians in the international fora uh, until a, a more viable representative body comes around. Um, I, I think you actually did misunderstand me, perhaps because of my, the hyperbole that I used in talking about the PLO as a dead fish. Um, I, as I said uh, in, my, in, in my answer to Mahmoud's earlier question, I think that to do anything, it's necessary to have a wholesale reorganization and revamping of the PLO. I think you're right, Sidney. Uh, the PLO provides an element of international legitimacy. It's recognized by about as many states as recognize the state of Israel. And that is an enormous achievement of the Palestinian leadership over many decades. And it's the result of a lot of sacrifice. And to throw it away, I think, would be foolish. But to say that the PLO today does anything is false. It is, in effect, a dead letter. I mean, one only has to read uh, uh, Hanan Ashawi's letter of resignation to see that from the inside, she's saying the same thing that I'm saying. It does not represent, unfortunately. It, is, it has a legitimacy. It is a representative institution, but which currently does not. It's not allowed to represent. Uh, by a leadership which has no vision and no strategy and, and is preventing uh, a renovation, a reorganization, uh, a revamping, a rejuvenation of the PLO with people who are younger, with people who are more representative and on an entirely democratic basis. When and if that happens, 
inshallah, hopefully soon, um, then I, I agree with you fully. This is, this is the, the ideal view, uh, combining Palestinians everywhere uh, uh, for putting the Palestine case forcefully through the world with a legitimacy that civil society groups by themselves can't do. Um, they're doing all that's being done, and that's why I say more power to them. Uh, there is nothing being done on the official level. There is effectively no diplomacy. Uh, and what diplomacy there is, is in the wrong direction in effect. But should the Palestinians succeed in reorganizing, revamping, rejuvenating the PLO, it is the ideal vehicle, obviously, um, for doing what you said, bringing together Palestinians around a, a consensus and a clear strategy, but also for representing Palestinians to the rest of the world. That has to be done on a grassroots level with the rest of the world. Uh, it, can be, it has to be done differently, perhaps, than it was done before. Attention has to be paid. If we believe Israel is a colonial settler project, the metropole is the United States and Europe. That's where the work has to be done. It has to be done elsewhere, of course, Brazil, India, China, Africa, uh, uh, Eastern Europe, but it, it, it has to be done essentially in the United States and Western Europe. That is the metro. That's where the trade of Israel is. That's where the money comes from. That's where the arms come from. All of the sophisticated weapon system Israel uses come from the United States. Huge volumes of, of money, not just $4 billion in military aid, huge volumes of money. You cannot walk around Jerusalem without seeing the name of an American Jewish philanthropist on every building in West Jerusalem. There's no hospital, there's no institution that is not funded by people here in this country. That is, that is, the, that, that is why work has to be done here, something the PLO failed utterly to do, even when it was operating efficiently in terms of diplomacy. And that's something that will have to be done when it's rejuvenated and, 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 uh, and uh, reorganized. Uh, following on on that point, uh, Salim, you wrote a lot on, on, on Jerusalem social history and also um, the, within the Ottoman Empire. And we all know that once uh, upon a time, Jerusalem was the focal point of Palestinian economy, politics, uh, social, and others. And of course, Khaldi Library is a testimony of, of, of this gravity uh, for Jerusalem within the Palestinian uh, social, economic, and political life. Now, sure, the Israeli policy is pushing Jerusalemites to the irrelevance margin. But do you think that the Palestinian political elites are also contributing to this? I mean, how many of the, uh, of the key players within the BAL actually are from Jerusalem or connected to Jerusalem? Uh, and if Jerusalem to be central to the Palestinian politics or central in the Palestinian politics, shouldn't Jerusalemites be also in uh, that making of that reality? Well, I don't know what you mean by political elites. The, um Palestinian authority. I mean the Palestinian authority without getting arrested. Yeah, because that's an important point. The, 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 um, the elite of, the social elite of Palestine has been dispersed by the two wars of 1948 and 67 all over the world, including in the neighboring uh, states of Syria, Lebanon, and Jordan. The, and of course, a lot of them made it to the diaspora where you see people like Rashid Khaldi and our major intellectual creme de la creme has actually um, established itself in the diaspora. The, the political elite that exists in the occupied territory is the elite that was formed in the struggle of the 60s and 70s 
and found itself compromised by the Oslo Agreement when the PLO came back and established the Palestinian Authority. At the moment, we are seeing a schism, not always very healthy, between the strategic objectives of the Palestinian Authority, the, um, what remained of the strategy within the PLO, and the various critical voices of this intellectual elite in the diaspora. And uh, of course, it, at one level, it's a very healthy schism because it energizes challenges and gives way to the Palestinian Authority and the PLO leadership, which is constrained by its various agreements, security and otherwise with the Israelis. But it also makes it very defensive. And that is why um, I think uh, we often move in circles when we, uh, when we talk about the articulations of the elite, of intellectual leadership, of people like Ibrahim Abu Lughod, Edward Said, uh, and now uh, uh, Rashid Khalidi and others, uh, with the um, political paralysis that we are facing within the existing uh, uh, establishment. I think it's very healthy to have this schism because it allows the diaspora to speak in a voice, not only to challenge the paralysis of the PLO, but also to give it signals uh, and freedom of action, which the bureaucracy of the PLO cannot uh, operate on because of its various dependency of uh, external money and its uh, uh, security relationship with Israel, which has been restored now. But it, it is a trap and I don't know how to break this trap. I don't, uh, I, it's, it's easy to say that uh, BDS and activist groups show the way, but actually these groups do not have a political strategy for Palestine that uh, can lead us. And uh, until that happens, we have to look at this tension uh, as an ongoing process. Rashid, do you have any comments on that? Not really. No. Let's take another question. Okay. Um, a lot of questions we're receiving is generally about um, general Palestine topics, so I'm going to allow myself to go beyond the scope of the book and Jerusalem. Um, a lot of the questions came on, on the Israeli civil, civil society uh, and the, um, um, the definition of what is an Israeli civil society. Of course, uh, uh, organizations like El Ad and their ugly work in Silwan and City of David um, is uh, very obvious to everyone and they categorize as civil society and actually within the Israeli system they are taking the privilege of being a civil society. How such um, organizations can be um, contested and how persons can create a counterpart to these kind of organizations? We have the Islamic Waqf which may be worth commenting on. Um, yeah, um, I mean that's a good question uh, and I, I leave aspects of relating to the situation inside Palestine, maybe to Sanim. But those organizations are part of an international, uh, an international set of interna internationally connected groups, 
many of these Israeli so-called NGOs um, are intellectually connected and in some cases financially connected to this country. And the place I think to combat them in addition and, and, to, and to build up rivals to them and to counter their efforts um, is not just in Palestine, but also here. Uh, it's, it's vital to understand the degree to which uh, Israel really is an extension of this metropole in so many respects, uh, not just in terms of money, intellectually. The campaign against BDS, the campaign to paint opposition to Israel, criticism of Israel as anti-Semitism, is an international campaign. The Ministry of Strategic Affairs in Jerusalem, the uh, Anti-Discrimination League in, in, in the United States, ADL, and other major organizations on both sides of the Atlantic, in Israel, in Europe, and in the United States, are working together. They are following the same legal strategies. The money is mainly coming from here. The direction is coming from both directions. And they have to be combated in both places, not just in Palestine or inside Israel, but also in the United States. It's an international campaign to prevent Palestinian advocacy from continuing to have the successes that it has had. And that campaign has to be combated both here and there. I'm not going to talk about what can be done there. I'm not, I'm not as close to what's happening in Palestine, obviously. I haven't been able to go for more than a year now, um, well over a year. Uh, I was going in the, in the spring when this, this plague hit us. Um, but I think it's absolutely essential for Palestinians to think globally. I'm not making a comparison between Palestinian nationalism and Zionism, but anybody who looks at the history of Zionism understands how important they always understood not just the diaspora, but the diaspora countries were. When Ben-Gurion and Ben-Zvi were kicked out by the Ottomans during World War I, they came to New York and they worked here for three and a half years, building up the basis for Zionism in the United States, building up the financial and the organizational and the informational basis, the discursive victory they won, such that only the Israeli narrative, only the Zionist narrative, dominated Western discourse for generations, was based on that, that understanding. We will not be able to defeat that only in Palestine. We have to defeat that also here. And enormous, enormous progress has been made. I mean, I mean, you have a campus like Columbia, which passes a divestment resolution. You have 30, 40, you will have maybe more than 30 members of the House of Representatives who are in some way supportive of Palestine. You have academia. I can't, I don't want to tilt my camera. When I was an undergraduate, how many books were there on Palestine? I was an undergraduate a very long time ago. There were a dozen, two dozen, three dozen, besides meretricious Zionist tracts. Today, my shelves are full, and the shelves, Mahmoud's bookshop is full of literally hundreds of excellent titles. Academia has moved 120 degrees, not 180 degrees, 120 degrees, away from the Zionist narrative and towards a much more objective, much a narrative that's much closer to the Palestinian narrative, which is largely correct. That is, th those are enormously important changes. And that is being fought globally, not just in Israel and by Israel, with their persecution of Israelis or Palestinians who speak through Facebook, through whatever they're doing, to, to shut down uh, uh, discourse uh, on Palestine and, and, and critical of Israel. It's being done here and it's the same campaign. So we have, I think we have to understand that and fight it in both places. And Ad gets its money from here. Uh, 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 so Kushner and, 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 and Friedman, the ambassador, to, to the US ambassador to Israel, are major donors to the settlement endeavor in, in, in Palestine. Settlements are, are funded from the United States. 
you don't just fight them by resistance in Palestine, you fight them by exposing this. These are 501c3s. The people who give money to this don't pay taxes. I pay taxes in order that they don't pay taxes and send money to build settlements in Palestine. That has to be exposed and can be exposed. It's not actually that hard to do. There's nothing charitable about the friends of the IDF. You're supporting an army in occupation with tax-free dollars. Those are campaigns that can be won, but it requires enormous effort, not just by ordinary Americans, but by Palestinians. And there has to be a Palestinian, as, as, as Sanyam said, it's not enough to have civil society. You have to have leadership, strategic vision by a unified Palestinian national movement that has come to a consensus, a Palestinian consensus inside and outside on what we want and why we want it. And it can explain it in simple language in every language of Europe, America, and the third world to the people we want to win over. It can't be a 37 paragraph Arabic division uh, followed by paragraph after paragraph. It's untranslatable and uncomprehensible. That's our political, those are our political pronouncements. It has to be clear, simple, and straightforward. This is why justice demands X, Y, Z for the Palestinian people. And that has to be the basis of our strategy. And that has to be put to people here. And then campaigns based on that have to follow. I'm sorry, I've gone on too long. No, that's fantastic. I, want, I don't know if Salim, you have something to say about the Islamic Waqf. I mean, today, King Abdullah of Jordan asserted the Hashemite custodianship of the Muslims and Christian sites in Jerusalem. He almost sounded as he was defending it. Uh, do you think uh, MBS is still vying for a role in the Haram al-Sharif? How do you feel about this? Yes, I think, let me say just a small word about uh, what uh, Rashid said about the Israeli factor. Uh, the question had two wings to it, one in the international arena and the other one about the Israeli left and Israeli protest movement as potential partners of Palestinians in finding a solution, uh, if, I'm, if I understood it correctly. That part is unfortunately uh, has reached its historical limits. The reason, if you compare our situation with what it was 25 years ago, you see that within Palestine emerged national forces, both in the center within Fatah and on the left, which saw on the Israeli left allies in the common struggle for the future of Palestine, either through a co one constituent nation or a binational nation or as two separate states. Since then, the Labour Party, which was the main uh, centrist, center-left force has been totally consumed by nationalism and has collapsed as a viable political force within Israeli politics. And the, the social democratic left has also been reduced almost to a, a very minor uh, factor, much smaller than the combined fourth of the United list of the Arab-Israeli left. So we have a very uh, unfortunate situation where we have to rely on international intervention by Jewish progressive forces in Europe and in the US to move this uh, Israeli component in favor for peace than on internal contradictions within Israel. Um, how will this change? It's not clear, but the settler movement, I think, has succeeded in neutralizing uh, 
the Israeli left uh, and making it uh, potentially not a, a, a force to ally ourselves with in finding a solution. I should add that the Palestinians themselves engaged in forms of nationalism that contributed to the marginalization of the Israeli opposition uh, by um, writing it off as, as part of the Zionist scheme. And we should not discount this factor. Uh, as for the Waqf, uh, it's a very sensitive issue because the Saudis now are making claims on the Jordanian turf, meaning that they are making claims for representing uh, the rights of Muslims in Palestine, in Jerusalem, within the context of Waqf administration, which so far has been primarily claimed by the Jordanians, who are the, uh, the chief uh, custodians of the holy places, and the Moroccans. We should not forget that the King of Morocco and the Moroccan state is the sponsor of the International Conference for Islamic um, uh, Jerusalem. Uh, it, the, the Saudis are making this claim not because of their um, deep faith in uh, their rights in defending Islam in Palestine, but because they badly need Islamic legitimacy given the sad affairs which uh, Crown Prince had found himself after the Khashoggi affair and the increased isolation of the Saudis not only in the Western world, but also within the Islamic world. So the, the Waqf administration is a feather to be sought to ameliorate the Saudi situation. I don't think it will go very far unless the Saudis are willing to uh, ally themselves with other Islamic forces and with the Americans in this pursuit. But I don't think it's going to succeed. Rashid, do you want to comment uh, briefly on this uh, changing regional, <laughs> changing of guards in the regional, in the Middle East? I, I think we should all be watching very carefully what happens inside Saudi Arabia. And we should be watching because I think that some very strange signals have been coming. Uh, uh, Salim mentioned uh, Turkey Faisal's uh, statements recently that were amply reported and, and, and uh, show that there are clearly some differences within the royal family. Now, whether these actually have to do with Palestine uh, or whether they have to do with the issue of the succession uh, is, not, is not clear to me. There have been other very strange reports coming out of that. Um, Mohammed bin Nayef and Mokrim, uh, Ibn Abdul Aziz, and, and, and jockeying, apparent jockeying among uh, uh, members of the royal family. And so Palestine and Jerusalem may just be a, a stick with which they beat each other. It's not clear. As Salim said, I don't think that the position, the Saudi position on Jerusalem is, is driven by faith or belief. Amen. It's driven by other, other considerations. Um, and it may have to do with, with issues between uh, the, the Saudi royal family and the Emirati uh, royal family. It's not, it's not at all clear to me. Um, but I think that Salim is absolutely right. I think the issue of control over the, the Al-Qaf and the Waqf in, in, in Jerusalem is a matter of, of supreme importance. Um, and Jordan clearly feels under enormous pressure. I think that the, the, 
Moroccan normalization increases that pressure. Uh, and, and, and Salim is right that uh, Saudi Arabia has been a, a much more active recently, uh, as has Turkey, by the way, in terms of Jerusalem and Islamic. Yes, Turkey is an important claimant because at the moment the Erdogan government has made uh, implicit and sometimes explicit claims for Turkey's right in, um, in Jerusalem and in the holy places as being the uh, patrimony of the, of the Ottoman state, the last major Middle East government to be in control of Palestine. And uh, the Turks have been very clever in this. They have invested a lot in restoring um, um, uh, re uh, religious artifacts, archaeological sites, and public monuments, which uh, Sultan Abdul Hamid uh, started in Palestine. Um, whether they will try to restore the Hejazi Railroad again, is something we've seen, but that is another holy relic that is to look forward to. <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> Salim and Rashid, thank you very much for your time you. and for making this event uh, possible, informative, and thought provoking.